1: Great to have you along for some more half assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Sir Isaac Newton, one of, if not the most famous scientists in human history, whose work on mathematics and physics would forever change our knowledge of the universe. Now, Newton, of course, was English. He came along at a time when scientific investigation and, and progress was... At uh, at a fever pitch, all throughout Europe, really, right in the middle of the Enlightenment here, all sorts of discoveries being made about all sorts of things. Um, but Newton, I think it's fair to say, he topped everyone. He really did. His magnum opus, a book called the Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica," really snappy title there, Newt's mate. Um, it uncovered some of the most some of the, some of the fundamental laws of the universe and. Newton's insight into the inner workings of physics and motion and gravity was, it was all backed up with incredibly advanced and far-sighted mathematical technology, which he himself invented, calculus, right? Um, essentially, what it boils down to is the fact that the, the maths that he was doing as, as part of his work on all, this, uh, on, on all this physics stuff, the maths he was doing was so complicated that he had to invent a whole new type of maths just to work through his theories. But it doesn't stop there. On top of this, he also did pioneering work in the field of optics, investigating the properties and the characteristics of light. He built the world's first reflecting telescope. Um, we still re- we still use reflecting telescopes to this very day. Um, and his second most famous work, a book called Optics, would have very easily stood on its own as a magnum opus. For any other scientist, this would have been an incredible lifetime achievement piece of work, right? But, I mean, you know, we're not for the fact that Principia had just blown it out of the water he even this is this is the the caliber of scientist that newton was his second most famous work was still world-changing incredible right so newton was and i mean in many ways really still is an absolutely towering figure in the in the history of science i mean again one of the most famous blokes in history more broadly i would say but also a bit of a weirdo Newton was. You might be interested to learn this. He was a bit of a strange fellow. He, was, uh, he could be very short-tempered, could be very unpleasant, even at the best of times. A lot of strange stuff going on with this bloke. And we're going to learn all about him, uh, about his scientific career, his personal character, and of course, all the you know very many incredible achievements he made throughout his long life. There have been a fair few listeners who have asked for the story of uh, of Newton and requested him as a topic for the show. Uh, Moritz Iberl, uh, Mark Burkett, a couple of other people who name, whose names I can't find, sorry about that. But thanks very much to all of you, exalted listeners all. I, I do hope I do a decent job of cramming as many details as possible uh, about this bloke in one episode. So let's get underway here, let's get stuck and begin the story of Isaac Newton, not to get across as ever. Here we go, we're going all the way back here, we're going all the way back to 1643, the 4th of January, the birth date of Isaac Newton. Now, you might have heard that he was actually born on the 25th of December in 1642, and that's true as well. How, you may ask? Well, that date uses the old Julian calendar, not the new Gregorian calendar. This wasn't The Gregorian calendar wasn't adopted in, in Britain until the 1750s. But we tend these days to use the new calendar rather than the old one, even when talking about stuff from years ago. So we're going to stick with the 4th of January, 1643. That was, uh, that's his birthday. Anyway, young baby Newton, he was born prematurely to a widow whose name was Hannah Aizkov. Uh His dad, who was also named Isaac Newton, unfortunately died three months before his young son was even born. And apparently Newton was so small when he was born, as I say, he was a premature baby, and he was so small when he was born that his mum said that she could put him inside a mug, right, a mug, I mean a big mug around the size of a litre, but still, tiny little baby. But he did survive, he survived his premature birth, and at the age of three, he was sent to live with his grandma when his mum remarried. So poor old Isaac, he sort of foisted off on grandma there. But he did receive a very good education as a youngster. Uh, he spent his teenage years at a fancy grammar school school called the King's School, where he learnt Latin and, and Greek and mathematics. And even at a young age, uh, Newton dem- demonstrated his quick mind and his curious and inquisitive nature, although he wasn't always the most socially well-adjusted student, and that translated into his adult life as well. He wasn't the most socially well-adjusted adult either. So um, one of the reasons apparently he did, he did very well at school uh, was to rub it in the face of another kid who bullied him, right? So apparently he got picked on at school and his way, I mean, look, you know, they say living well is the best revenge, but it also does sound like the sort of thing a huge nerd would do. Well, I'll show those bullies, I'll go and get really good grades and and be very successful. I mean, what an absolute nerd. And look, he was, I mean, he he was the king of the nerds, really. There's no doubt about it. The bloke was clever, unbelievably intelligent, but... He also did some really dumb things throughout his life. The classic nerd's high intelligence and low wisdom. And also, on top of this, like a true word, as I say, wasn't hugely socially well-adjusted. He was prickly and difficult. He was was suspicious of everyone, deeply introverted. We'll talk about uh, this a a bit more later on uh, throughout the episode. Anyway, in 1661, age of 18, he went off to Cambridge University, studied at Trinity College, where he spent most of his time investigating mathematics uh, and physics. And even though this discipline didn't really exist at the time in the way that we think of it, of it today, chemistry as well. We'll come back to chemistry. It? Just remember, remember, I mean, obviously, he's, he's very well known for his work in maths and physics, but uh, keep chemistry in mind as well. We'll, we'll return to that uh, directly. Anyway, at university, he studied everyone from the ancient Aristotle through to the modern Galileo, episodes 209, 210, get across them, Um, Although his studies were interrupted in 1665 when the university closed because of a, and this might hit a little bit too close to home for us these days, the university closed because of a pandemic. The bubonic plague was running rampant through London in 1665 and 1666, and so Cambridge closed and Newton was sent home. However, He did not waste the lockdown. He did not waste the pandemic. He continued his studies privately. He extended and expanded his learning at university and he started to write texts and essays that would go on to become the foundations of these later monumentally important works that we've already talked about. Now, specifically, he made some incredible groundbreaking progress in mathematics. And I mentioned before, he developed calculus, a whole new flavor of maths all by himself. But Despite this, right, despite the enormous weight of the work, the inventions and discoveries he'd made, you know, at a very young age in his early 20s, he just didn't really tell anyone about the about the progress he'd made. He didn't really tell anyone about calculus. He did publish smaller essays and appeared in footnotes here and there of some of his work, but the full breadth of the amazing progress he'd made in maths was kept very close to his chest for whatever reason. Anyway, after returning to Cambridge when it reopened in 1667, He was better educated and more informed on maths and physics and, again, chemistry, we'll come back to this, than ever before. And he began his career as an academic. He became a professor just two years later in 1669, and he was well on his way, even as a young man, to changing the course of scientific history. And as I mentioned, this was at a time when a lot of world-changing investigation and research and experimentation was being done. Don't forget, we're in the middle of the scientific revolution, in the midst of the Enlightenment here. far-sighted thinkers with incredible ideas are upsetting the apple cart all over the place. People like Galileo, as mentioned, with his heliocentrism, his foundational work on classical mechanics. Newton was ready to cast his hat into the ring as well. Although I have to say, I do have to say this. He didn't really have the same obsession with scientific rigor that Galileo did. And this is where we're going to come back to that, uh, to the topic of chemistry that I mentioned before. Newton maintained a lifelong interest in the occult and the supernatural and the mythological, and he was very ready to incorporate things like magic and alchemy into his research. Now, look. You know, we're not here to have a go at the bloke. You can't get them all right. But one of the most frustrating things about learning you know, learning about Isaac Newton's career was finding out just how much bloody time he spent trying to turn lead into gold and trying to find the philosopher's stone. If only he put this energy into science rather than alchemy, who knows who knows how else we you know, he would have advanced our understanding of the world. I mean we would all be bloody flying cars by now if Newton had been mucking around with with the trying to trying to find the elixir of life, but His interest in alchemy, you know, well, as I say, alchemy, chemistry at this point, the disciplines were very, very closely interlinked and there was a lot of supernatural mumbo-jumbo involved in chemistry. It was very, very early on in chemistry's career as an academic discipline and it lacked a lot of the, as I say, scientific rigor of some other parts of uh, of scientific investigation and Newton was obsessed with it, absolutely obsessed with it, right? But, But luckily and thankfully, he didn't consume all of his time. And as, we, and as we move into the 1670s, Newton, he's kicking about at Cambridge, he's working as a professor, he's lecturing on physics, he's, and specifically in physics, optics, right? This is his area of expertise. He wrote extensively on optics. He started off with essays that would later be brought together to form his, uh, his groundbreaking work, Optics. We'll get to that when, it, when it's published. But he made some incredible discoveries about light and about optics. He theorized that light is corpuscular, uh, or in other words made up of lots of tiny tiny little particles or, or corpuscles i don't know how to say that Cor- corpuscles i don't know what it is but corpuscular is the name of, uh, of, of is, is the the property that he thought light had he thought it was uh, a corpuscular um and he he theorized that these corpuscles corpuscles i don't know english is the stupidest language in the world because like if this if the c l e s in this word we were in muscles we'd say muscles we don't say muscules but then i look at this and i'm like is it corpus corpuscles is it a greek word i don't know all right bugger it i'm not saying this the particles right the, the corpus whatever they are the, the particles right these particles he theorized that these particles traveled in straight lines uh, at a finite speed and that they came in different combinations, in different mixtures, and that a given mixture of different types of, of particles is what produces things like color. So according to Newton, as this particle field light hits the retina in the back of your eye, it allows you not only to see, but also unlock certain colours as it hits your retina. And that's why we see the world in color. Um, and in order to prove how the retina could be influenced when things collided with it, with you know the pressure that was put on it by these particles as they slammed the back of your, of your retina, this is what he did to. You know, to support this theory. Newton took matters very, I mean, quite literally here, into his own hands. He got a bodkin needle, a uh, bodkin needle, sort of blunt needle that's often used in leatherworking, and he, and look, I will be very honest with you, this is about to get pretty disgusting, so fair warning. He took the needle and he inserted it between his eye and eye socket, and he wiggled it around to the back, to the rear of his eye, and then moved it around, pressing it against the back of his eyeball, producing an explosion of colors and shapes and patterns as he did so, I mean, at least to his perspective. So he did this to test the way that the back of the eye, that the retina, was, how it responded when exposed to pressure, because he believed that light and the particles within it came and actually put pressure on the, on the, uh, the retina in order to create color and that sort of thing. Uh, But he also did this to test the way the internal curvature of the eye could be manipulated to distort your vision. And you can go online and you can see the report that Newton very happily wrote after performing this stomach-churning experiment on himself. And if you've got a mind to repeat this experiment uh, and test it for yourself, I would firstly say, do not. Don't do that. It's not a very safe thing to do, and I don't really know how Isaac Newton got away with it. But if you want to do it in a way that isn't going to potentially leave you blinded for life or at least make you look like, I don't know, a cartoon character whose eyes have popped out of their heads, just rub your eyes a little bit like you do when you wake up in the morning and then you can replicate some of the colours and the shapes and the patterns that Newton saw. You can see them for yourself. I mean, you know, put the needle down, rub your eyes like you've just woken up with your fingers, not like a needle. That's all Newton was really doing, but he decided, nope, better get in there properly from the back. I mean, absolutely bonkers. But this, interestingly as well, this wasn't the only ridiculous and potentially harmful experiment that Newton performed on himself when attempting to better understand light. Because the bloke once stared at the reflection of the sun in a mirror for ages just to see what would happen. Not a very safe thing to do. Do not try this at home. I mean, you'll never guess what did happen. You'll never guess what the result of his bold self-experimentation was. He was blinded for three days and couldn't get the afterimage out of his vision for months after that. I mean, we say he's one of the smartest blokes in history and it's difficult to argue when you see some of his incredible scientific achievements, but mate, what are you doing? I mean, don't stare into the sun. Who needs to be told that? What a... uh, Anyway. Newton's corpuscular theory of light wasn't quite right. He didn't quite get everything correct, but it did have a lot of merit to it and he did get a fair bit of it right he thought that these little particles put physical pressure on your eyes to create color which is not quite it but the other stuff traveling in straight lines uh you know uh, um uh, traveling at a finite speed modern physicists know that it's photons rather than corpuscles or whatever they're called Um, photons are the particles that transmit transmit light and they do so as Newton theorized at a finite speed in a straight line, although they are also somehow both waves and particles at the same time. We're leaving classical mechanics, we're getting into quantum here, so let's chuck ourselves into reverse and get back to much safer ground because I'm well out of my depth there. But the end result of Newton's observations and experimentation and investigation with light and optics was ultimately an exciting new type of telescope. We can talk about some of the practical effects of newton's research here galileo had popular popularized the refracting telescope one that one that uses uh, different lenses to magnify things you know this is the typical uh, eyeglass the spyglass that you'd you'd, you'd, you think of a a sea captain using but newton was going to do one better because newton invented invented the reflecting telescope instead because his work on light convinced him that lenses dispersed light inconsistently and so instead of lenses he used mirrors. And as such, the reflecting telescope was born. He used curved mirrors in order to magnify things and they were much sharper and much clearer than refracting telescopes. And ever since Newton invented the world's first functional and practical reflective telescope, they have never been out of business ever since. In fact, you might have heard the recently launched James Webb Telescope. You've probably heard of this. It is just an extremely fancy reflective telescope. So in building the world's first, again, functional and practical reflecting telescope in 1668, Newton used a curved mirror instead of a lens, an enormous improvement on refractive lenses, and an important invention in the history of of astronomy and science more generally, and it began to gain young Newton a fair bit of recognition, but also with this recognition came criticism. He published more essays on optics, uh, which were, as of course they should be, Read, examined, and duly criticised by other scientists at the time. People who went through and they they tested his ideas and they put pressure on him and said, well, maybe this isn't right and maybe we need to look at this. And Newton did not like this at all. He could not handle criticism well. Quite the opposite, in fact. He absolutely couldn't stand people contradicting him and his work. But I mean, remember at this stage. He's just a lecturer at Cambridge, what has invented a fancy telescope. He's not a leading light of scientific thought, not yet. So when famous scientist Robert Hooke, who was an expert on optics, published a public critique of Newton's work, you might think, well, fair enough, the young fella's still got a lot to learn. Newton, however, he went off. He was spitting chips, absolutely furious. And in response to Hooke's criticism of him, he withdrew from public scientific affairs altogether. He was a touchy bloke, Isaac Newton. He had a very, very thin skin and a bad temper, which is never a good combination. It wasn't until 1675 that Newton published new work on optics. And this didn't go much, this didn't go much better. It didn't go any better over with Hooke, certainly, who publicly accused Newton of plagiarising him, which is, I don't know, a little, a little gutsy of Hooke as he was certainly a bloke who wasn't afraid to... Uh, <clears throat> borrow uh, ideas that were taken from others um, but a very public and very serious accusation of of, uh, of plagiarism made against newton by Hooke and completely destroyed any hope of reconciliation between the two blokes a bitter rivalry and enmity grew between them instead and newton never forgot about it as we'll see in a little bit but uh when other scientists criticized more of his work in 1678 newton once again withdrew He broke off his correspondence and he went into furious isolation for a second time. And what did he do during these periods of isolation? Well, similar to earlier in his life during the pandemic, his time sequestered away was put to use with more research and more investigation and more experimentation and, unfortunately a lot of this was of absolutely no scientific worth at all. Newton was, as I've already mentioned, enormously interested in alchemy and hermeticism and also the occult and and, and mythology. For all of his scientific genius, uh, Newton seemed to very firmly believe that base metals could be turned or transmuted into gold. But on top of this... He also spent much of his career examining things like the floor plan to the biblical Temple of Solomon, believing that it held clues about the end of the world. Now, if that sounds pretty bonkers and off the wall, it is because it certainly was, and Newton never really left behind any compelling evidence whatsoever that his research had come to anything at all. But if we turn back to the alchemy for a little bit, and we can maybe cobbled together a bit of a defence for how he spent his time when it came to alchemy and chemistry. Because as I mentioned, chemistry, it didn't fully exist as a discipline, yet it was very new and a lot of it was mixed up with unscientific nonsense anyway. But you know, it doesn't, doesn't really come close to being an excuse for just how wildly Newton was off base while searching for the Philosopher's Stone. I might mention as well, All of Newton's alchemical research was done in the strictest of secrecy. Alchemy was outlawed. It attracted a very harsh punishment. Um, And you might think, well, why? I mean, it's harmless enough, isn't it? Well, no, it wasn't harmless. It was quite harmful. First of all, alchemy was uh, often a tool of the charlatan. Uh, Con men and other tricksters would use it as a way to uh, part people from their money by tricking them into buying snake oils of various kinds, essentially. Uh, Secondly, it was seen as unnatural and heretical. Uh, So there was a lot of religious opposition to it. But my favourite reason for the, the outright banning of alchemy, at least in England, right, was that the government was at least a little bit worried that alchemy might actually be real and that base metals could, after all, be transmuted into gold. And if this happened, gold would become worthless, the government treasuries would be useless, and... Mass chaos would doubtless ensue. So I do find it very funny that the English government outlawed alchemy, at least on some level, because they were worried that it could be real. Anyway, for all these reasons and more, Newton kept his alchemical research very private, although a lot of his writing on the topic has survived, not that it has anything of much scientific worth in there. And there was also all the stuff about Solomon's Temple, and look, I'm not going to get into that all that much, but the long and the short of it is this. Newton believed that the Christian God had chosen him specifically to unravel prophecies hidden inside biblical scripture, and for many, many years he sought after a code that was hidden in the Bible. This is all Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code-style nonsense, absolutely nothing to it. But it did mean that he studied, of all things, the architectural prop- properties and proportions of the Temple of Solomon, believing that it hid secrets about the end of the world. And Newton duly prophesied that the world would end no earlier than 2060. So we've got a little bit, of, at least we've got a little bit of time left. But for those of you who remember all the fuss about the Mayan long count back in 2012, look forward to a whole lot of nonsense about Newton in four decades or so. Anyway. Look, this isn't what I wanted to talk about all that much today. Newton was a bit bonkers when it came to alchemy and the occult and nonsense like that, and he did waste a lot of time on it. It's a pity, given the enormous importance of his actual scientific work, and again, just imagine if he put all the time he wasted uh, into, you know, tr- instead of trying to turn lead into gold, into actual proper science, but so it got. Selling a little or a lot? as we bring in a bloke named Edmund Halley, whose visit to Newton in, uh, in 1684 would bring about a colossal change in both science and mathematics. Now, Edmund Halley, really interesting bloke, a uh, bloke uh, who obviously Halley's Comet is named for. Um, uh, he was an amazing scientist himself. He did a lot of important work in astronomy, he include, uh, including obviously predicting when the comet that bears his name would reappear in the sky. Although we're not there yet. He couldn't have done that without Newton. But he's also a sea captain and, and an inventor and a really interesting bloke, Halley. We, we may cover him in a, in a future episode. But in 1683, Halley was having dinner with Robert Hooke, the bloke who had slagged off Newton earlier, uh, and another famous astronomer, whose name was Christopher Wren, um, uh, he might be more actually famous Christopher Wren as an architect rather than an astronomer. He designed St Paul's Cathedral in London. But the three of them, they're having dinner. They're chatting about you know the motion of celestial objects, as you do at a dinner party. Um, and while it was well known that things like planets tended to orbit in an elliptical fashion, right, no one knew why. And this is the topic of conversation that these three blokes are, uh, are getting through, they're getting their teeth into, talking about why planets tend to tend to orbit in, in ellipses, right? And as none of them could suitably explain why this took place, given the knowledge that they all had, Wren issued the two of them a challenge. Wren issued uh, Halley and Hook a challenge. He said, listen, you blokes... I will give the princely sum of 40 shillings to the first one of you two who can come to me with an explanation as to why orbits are usually elliptical. Now, Hook, who does seem to have been a bit of a bullshit artist at the best of times, he claimed that he already knew, he'd already figured it out, and he also wasn't going to tell anyone. He refused to say so as to give Halley a fair go and to give him the satisfaction of working it out for himself. Absolute nonsense. Hook never before or after gave any indication that he had any idea whatsoever. But Halley accepted the challenge in good faith, and he went for it. But he didn't have much luck on his own. He didn't have much luck in cracking the case as to why orbits were elliptical rather than, you know, circular or, I don't know, I guess an orbit's never going to really be triangular. There'd have to be a lot of very interesting things going on there. But, you know, he couldn't figure out why orbits were elliptical. And so he began to refer to other scientists, other learned gentlemen and there was one scientist in particular uh, who had dabbled in this sort of thing throughout his career so far that he ended up attending to and, and having a meeting with in, in, in the next year in 1684. And that man was, of course, Isaac Newton. Halley met with him in, in 1684. And after asking Newton why orbits tended to be elliptical, Newton said to him, oh, yeah, actually, wait a second. Um, I did figure that out. Uh, hang on, let me find a bit of paper. The thing is here, he's not pulling a Robert Hook." Newton had, in the years previous, calculated the 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 you know orbital motion that involved planets orbiting in an ellipsis, and he had the proof to back it up that he'd written down somewhere. So he's, you know, digging through all these papers. Halley's there scratching his head saying, mate, you've got the answer to one of the preeminent scientific questions in early astrophysics, and you're talking about like it's a shopping list that you put down somewhere. What do you mean? But Newton, he's looking everywhere, high and low, going through his drawers, pulling everything out, and he goes, oh, mate, I can't find it. I just can't find I'm so sorry. I know I had it here somewhere. No idea where it's gone. Sorry about that, mate. But I'll tell you what, I'll do you one better. I mean, Halley's jumping out of his skin here. He's going. I mean, this might not sound like much to us these days, but this is like someone discovering something absolutely world-changing. Like, I don't know, like um how to put a USB stick into your computer the right way around first time, every time. And then just not being able to find the bit of paper that they wrote it down on. It's huge. But Newton goes, mate. I'll do one better. Don't worry about it. I'll rewrite it. I'll do a better job this, this, this time around too. I'll get it all sorted out. I'll send it to you and then I'll give you your proof. Don't even worry about it. And so with Halley's visit, Newton was given a new project. He once again sequestered himself away and he began to work on redoing his proof on elliptical orbits. And three months later, Newton sent Halley a short essay, about nine pages long, which answered this problem as promised But Newton didn't stop there. This incredible piece of scientific output was just the beginning for Newton, if you'll believe it, because what it did, it launched him into the greatest project of his entire life. He continued to expand his works on physics and motion and ultimately, of course, gravity as he got deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole that Halley had opened up for him. He is said to have been so obsessed with this project that he would often forget to eat or drink or he would he's out for a walk he'd rush back to his desk at all hours of the day or night whenever he thought of an idea that he wanted to include he'd write it down before it even sat down Isaac Newton was a bloke who was so obsessed with his work even at the best times that there are stories about him waking up in the morning going to get out of bed and halfway out of his bed like he would pause as an idea came into his head and he would stand there frozen in time while he turned it over in his mind halfway it was you know he's always bloody pulling his pants up in the morning as he's getting dressed. This bloke had an incredibly sharp mind, but it was also one that was very, very easily distracted from boring things like, you know, eating and drinking and getting dressed. And all of its attention was solely focused on the problems that had been put in front of him by Halley and problems that grew from those problems as well as he went deeper and deeper and deeper into the world of the physical laws that govern our day-to-day life in the universe. He was so consumed with this project, and this will show you just how much he cared about it, that he even stopped all of the alchemical nonsense for a few years. He was so obsessed with his work in physics that he stopped trying to turn lead into gold for a while. And less than three years later, Newton published one of the most monumentally important works in human history, the Philosophiae Naturalis Principia, Mathematica, which is usually just referred to as Principia. And why is this book so important? It is essentially the foundational document for the study of classical mechanics, the physical laws, as I say, that govern our existence in this universe. Classical mechanics doesn't cover things like special relativity for things that are very, very big, or quantum mechanics for things that are very, very small. But more or less, everything else is handled By classical mechanics how they move how they relate to each other how they how things change and shift and i mean this was groundbreaking work because prior to this right investigation of things like physical laws and motion and inertia and change and movement everything else it was done empirically it was done with observation and physical evidence. Think back, think back to Galileo observing Jupiter's moons. That was the basis, that was real-world empirical evidence that he used to propound scientific theories. But Newton changed all of that with Principia. He didn't need empirical evidence. He didn't even need to get out of his chair in proving his laws of classical mechanics. He proved them with mathematics, with numbers. He proved that there are clear and consistent physical laws behind how the universe operates, and these laws themselves are governed by the rigid and uncompromising nature of numbers. But to do this, he couldn't rely on the regular type of numbers and mathematics that we grew up with in primary school. No, no, he had to, as I mentioned before, he had to make up a whole new flavour of mathematics altogether. And I mentioned, I talked a little bit about this when talking about his first period of isolation during the pandemic back in 1666. Newton had been sitting on this new form of mathematics for years, unwilling to publish it, but he did put it into Principia. Now, I tried. I really, exalted listener, you must believe me, I really tried to understand, I mean not even how it works, but what calculus is in the first place. So I could talk about Newton's remarkable use of it in Principia, but I simply just, I just do not understand, not even what it does or how it operates, but like what it is. Not at all. It seems to be a spicy new type of maths. And as far as I'm concerned, the normal maths that we have now is a bit much anyway. So I don't know why Newton had to invent a new version, but that's what he did. He and another fella, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, they came up with it concurrently but independently and they share the credit for its invention. I'll come to the story of actually who invented it first in a little bit. But in 1687, Newton published the Principia, mainly funded by Halley, I might add. It was Halley who paid for the uh, the publication of these novels out of his own pocket. And the world of science would never be the same. Because in the Principia, Newton explained his famous three laws of motion. You may have heard of these before. Number one a thing will always move in the direction it's pushed. Number two, it will keep moving until something stops, slows or moves it. And number three, each action has an equal and opposite reaction. Principia also contained Newton's theory of gravitation, which uh, Newton himself claimed was inspired by watching an apple fall from a tree. It didn't bonk him on the head, as the story often goes, that part's apocryphal, but apparently Newton did watch an apple fall from a tree and he asked why. Why did it fall down? Why doesn't it fall sideways? Why doesn't it fly up into the sky? And Newton ultimately and correctly concluded that the Earth pulls the apple towards it. But for that to be true, the apple must also pull the Earth towards it, although, you know, not quite as strongly. And this is true. This is the fundamental truth of gravitational force. Everything has its own gravitational field. It's just that most things that you and I come across day to day, except for, I don't know, the earth, the moon, and the sun, they're not massive enough to influence anything with their gravity. But everything does have its own field of gravity. You and me and the the device you listen to this podcast on to, the the, the meal you ate for lunch, everything does have its own personal field of gravity. It's just that something has to be very, very, very massive for that gravity to really even be remotely notable significant or or important but here is the most remarkable part of newton's discoveries here is what really makes principia the incredible document the incredible world changing piece of scientific progress that it is with classical mechanics as set out by newton you could using maths alone not only work out where a thing in motion had been but also predict where it would be in the future, like Halley's Comet, for instance, and calculate what would happen to it if it were interfered with in some way. This is the basis of these three laws of motion. If you can put all the numbers into this system, they will spit out numbers that are invariably correct and allow you to calculate things like the trajectory of cannonballs, the positions of stars and planets and comets, anything else that involves the speed and motion, and movement of things. With his laws of motion and theory of gravitation, Newton was the first human in history to ever express a fundamental law of the universe. A truly enormous achievement. Principia changed the world forever. Science has never been the same since Isaac Newton's magnum opus. But, even at the time, not everyone was a fan of it. Old mate Robert Hooke, he's back again, for instance. I mean, Newton's old rival accused him of plagiarism, again, without a scrap of any real evidence. I mean, remember, Hooke claimed that he had already solved the problem of elliptical orbits and was now claiming Newton had plagiarized him, all without any evidence whatsoever. But this time, Newton put him in his place. I'll tell you this, Newton could have just taken the path of least resistance and just added a little thank you to Hook in his acknowledgement section or something. Be like, Oh, yeah, you know, Hook did this, he did that, whatever else. But no, Newton, who was quite a nasty and antagonistic bloke when he wanted to be, He went through Principia, he went through his manuscript, and he removed almost every single reference to Hook altogether. Rather than just acknowledge him, he took the opposite tack and attempted to erase him instead. The other problem that people had with Principia, um, and this was a problem that was actually a feature, not a bug, as far as Newton was concerned. It was enormously dense, very, very complicated, but Newton did this on purpose. He was gatekeeping his own work by making sure it wasn't accessible to people. He deliberately wanted to avoid lay people reading and understanding it and understanding it, so he made it very difficult to understand on purpose. But all the same, it became immensely popular very quickly. And not long after its publication, Newton was an internationally renowned and celebrated scientist as people read his book discovered some of the core truths of the universe that we live in as Newton laid them bare for, well, I was going to say for all to see, not really for all to see, for a very select group of very, very well-educated people to see. But all the same, Newton opened the doors for our understanding of things like classical mechanics and some of the fundamental the, the, the fundamental laws that, again, underpin our existence in this universe. So... Flushed with success, I'm happy to say that Newton became a little more gregarious, a little more outgoing, a little friendlier than before. With his great scientific work behind him, Newton, interestingly, moved into other areas and, and, and took up other pursuits. Um, in, when the Glorious Revolution took place in 1688 and 1689, this was when uh, King Charles, a Catholic, was, was uh, turfed off the throne and instead replaced by uh, uh, William and Mary – Um, Newton picked the winning side, and he was rewarded for his loyalty to King William and Queen Mary with a prime government posting. It's very weird to think about this supremely able scientist, this lofty genius, right, spending the back half of his life as the master of the royal mint, but that's what Newton did. He never left science behind altogether, of course. He revised Principia a couple of times. He continued scientific uh, correspondence, if not research, but for the last 30 years of his life, he ran the mint, He also spent some time in Parliament, although not much. The only speech that he's said to have given uh, was to ask to close a window, as it was a little chilly. Uh, But at one point, he was also made uh, President of the Royal Society. We'll we'll come to all this in due course. In the 1690s, he moved to London. He took up this position at the Mint, which was supposed to just be a cushy job where he could pick up a paycheck without much involvement to recognise his fame as a scientist and, again, reward his political loyalty. But instead, Newton was not a bloke given over to half measures, and he went very hard in his job at the Mint. Uh, Counterfeiting and clipping were two huge problems that were plaguing English currency at the time. Counterfeiting, obviously, you know what that is, making fake coins. But clipping involves cutting tiny, tiny bits off of coins, which again, remember, at that point in history, were made with precious metals. So if you could take a coin, cut a little bit of the precious metal away, and then still spend it for the same amount, you've made yourself a you know, a healthy profit. Imagine if you took, I don't know, like a $2 coin, you cut 10% off of it. You've got 20 cents left off that you cut off of it. And then you go and spent the remaining $1.80 for its full value of $2. I mean, that's a, it's a very sneaky way to make a little profit and, you know, make these coins stretch a lot further than they would otherwise. Heavily, heavily illegal. And Newton went after clippers and counterfeiters like you wouldn't believe, right? He was instrumental in the great recoinage of 1696. And uh, as part of his, uh, I guess, pursuit, his dogged pursuit of these counterfeiters and clippers, he would disguise himself, sneak into, in, into shady inns and taverns that were known to be places where counterfeiters would, uh, would hang out. And he would overhear, eavesdrop on their conversations, gather evidence himself before bringing the hammer down. He sent a lot of counterfeiters to the gallows, let me tell you. And he did a surprisingly good job of rescuing the mint from ruin. After the Act of Union that brought England and Scotland together to form Great Britain, Newton designed new coins, he gave Britain its first common currency, and he stuck in his position at the mint until he died. We don't hear about it much, but Newton really did go off as a government official, not just as a scientist. But that's not all he did during this time, as I mentioned. He spent some time in Parliament. He worked on the odd scientific or mathematical problem here and there, and he corresponded with other scientific giants throughout Europe. In 1701, he resigned his professorship at Cambridge, and in 1703, he was appointed as the president of the Royal Society, the British Academy of Sciences. Um, And these days, it's traditional for presidents to serve a single term of five years at the Royal Society. But Newton, however, he stayed in the position until he died, spending two and a half decades as president. In 1704, he published another work. He, he published Optics, uh, a book that collated and compiled all of his work on you'll be surprised to learn, optics. Uh, And as I mentioned before, this would very easily have been any other scientist's magnum opus. It was yet another groundbreaking scientific document explaining the nature of light and colour and all these other things. It explained how light can be diffracted or broken up into colours by prisms. And of course, it triggered another bit of dispute with Robert Hooke, who seemed to have spent half his life fighting with Newton. But it was another success and another testament to Newton's genius as a scientist, And his success as both a public servant and as a preeminent scientist won him a lot of royal favour. In 1705, he was knighted by Queen Anne, becoming Sir Isaac Newton, and he spent a lot of time in and around the royal court as a bit of an identity, as 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 I say, a very successful scientist there. But it wasn't all smooth sailing in the back half of Newton's life, I have to say. In 1711, he got into a long and protracted argument with Leibniz, this guy that I mentioned before, the bloke who had also come up with calculus. Uh, And the two men fought about who had actually got there first. Leibniz had published a full account of his invention of calculus before Newton had. But you remember that when he was young, in his early 20s, Newton had discovered and put calculus to use, even as a student. Even he he just didn't actually publish his full set of ideas. But Newton relied on the partial publication of some of his ideas as proof that he had indeed got there first. And he did everything he could to besmirch Leibniz's name up and down Europe. And Newton's reputation as a scientific genius aided him greatly in slandering Leibniz. And for his part, Leibniz wasn't a very good sport about it either. They ended up bitter rivals. Um, Newton really doesn't seem to have been afraid to put people offside. He weaponized the Royal Society. Don't forget he was president. And so he ordered an, quote unquote, independent scientific inquiry into the issue, And then went ahead and wrote the conclusion to this inquiry himself and then analyzed the inquiry anonymously in a scientific journal. So he was a weird bloke, Newton, and really not prepared at any point to ever take an L. Uh, But he was also a very dangerous enemy. He never really let Leibniz rest and the rivalry continued between the two men. I mean, I was going to say until Leibniz died, but even after that, after Leibniz died in 1716, Newton continued to fight for his side of the story. Today, with a longer and more balanced view of things, we do tend to give both men credit and say that they both came up with calculus independently and largely simultaneously. And I'm not going to be drawn any further into having an opinion on the matter because I don't want to be bullied by maths nerds about how wrong I am by picking one horse or the other. So well done, both of you, a draw. Anyway, what else do you do? Um, Oh yeah, he revised Principia a couple of times, he published a second and then a third edition before he died, uh, both with updates and corrections. Uh, He also lost a cool £20,000, £4 million in today's money, on bad investments into Britain's South Sea company. That didn't work out too well for him. And I'm sorry to say he also kept working on his stupid alchemy like an idiot, uh, and published a few bits and pieces on theology. I suppose we still have to wait until until 2060 to see if he was right about all of that. Anyway, but he never did anything as important or as impactful as his creation of Principia. Of course, I mean, of course, it, it, it stands to reason. Very few people have even once in their life produced a work of such importance, uh, and the back half of Newton's life was a lot less noteworthy than the first because of how high he peaked with Principia. Isaac Newton died on the 30th of March, 1727, at the age of 84. He'd never married, and there are some theories that suggest that he had actually he, he died a virgin. He never seemed particularly interested in the romantic company of anyone else ever at, at all. But at the ripe age of 84, he had lived a long life and was held in high esteem by both the scientific community and the royal court in Britain. The long and illustrious life of this supremely gifted and also supremely weird bloke, had finally come to an end after a long, long time. But what a life it was. Despite being a bit of a nasty weirdo, Newton's discoveries and publications in the world of physics and mathematics have, as I've said several times, completely changed the course of human history. Being the first human in history to uncover and publish a universal law of nature, a fundamental rule about the inner workings of the universe... This bloke once quite modestly described himself by saying that he had seen further than anyone else because he had stood on the shoulders of giants, but even so, he saw a long, long way ahead and forever changed our knowledge and conception of the universe and its rules. He shed so much light on how the universe works, on the fundamental physical laws that govern our existence, that even today, hundreds of years later, he is still considered one of the most important scientists, one of the most important humans to have ever existed. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Sir Isaac Newton. And, mate, look, again... As has been the case with so many of these towering figures from history, I feel like I barely scratched the surface with this bloke. But I do hope you enjoyed learning a thing or two about him, his achievements, how, you know, kind of weird he was as well. Uh, fascinating figure. Absolutely fascinating figure from the history of science. Anyway, that's that for this week of Half House History. I do hope you've enjoyed the show. Thanks for being with us. Uh, all the normal boring housekeeping stuff, ha- uh, halfhousehistory.net. Of course, you can find uh, everything you need at the website, a contact form there. Thank you to all the people getting in touch each week. And of course, links to the merch site if you want to buy anything or the patreon, uh, uh, patreoncom history. if you want to support the show. Thank you to all the people who are doing so. Uh, another round of merch has uh, has gone out to people, so I do hope that's winging its way safely to the people wanting. If you want to get your hands on some exclusive merch, it's not too late. Sign up, stick around for 3 months, you get yourself maybe a t-shirt, a print, a mug, who knows. Well, I mean, it's not who knows. It's not it's not luck of the draw. You it's very clearly laid out about, you know, what you get and how much it'll, you know, cost you and all that sort of stuff. So, get across there show notes early access uncut uncut stuff all sorts of things anyway uh thank you to all the patrons thank you to the people who are spreading the word of the show i had a look i cannot believe this over 600 five-star reviews on spotify that's incredible thank you so much to everyone who's gone on spotify and completely blown me out of the water with all those reviews iTunes as well, there are, some, there are a bunch of people who have gone and written lovely things about the podcast on iTunes. If you've got the time, it doesn't take too long At Spotify, it's so just click of a button if you want to write something on iTunes, you can as well. Thank you so much to the people who are doing this. I'm told that it is very algorithmically beneficial to the show. So if you're not going out to the real world in the meat space and telling your friends and enemies and people you feel ambivalent about, about the show, that's fine. But if you can go online and uh, and check a review my way, I mean, give it, I mean, let's let's be real let's make sure it's gonna be a five-star review come on i mean all these you know, people go oh you know leave a review leave some feedback i'm only i'm only really asking you today if you're gonna if you're gonna give me the full five come on come on because let's 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 be real here let's not muck around um anyway thanks for listening thanks for being here back next week with more nonsense of course but until then leaving you with a question posed on reddit this one about isaac newton and a good question too comes to us from reddit historian abu ben adam who asks how did newton survive infancy without getting crushed by the swinging weights of his cradle.